Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, last week of course was Pentecost and we talked about Pentecost and what it means biblically and what it means for us today with regards to the Holy Spirit and how he functions in our lives and now we're back in the book of Mark and this week we pick it up in Mark 5 starting verse 21 and when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side a great multitude gathered about him and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and upon seeing him fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. And Jesus went off with a man and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Lord, this morning in your word, we ask that you would show us wonderful things that you would reveal to us once again in the most amazing way your power, your sovereignty, your compassion, your ability to deal with our every problem, the every situation that may come our way in this lifetime. And I pray for those who are in need of faith this morning, that through the teaching of your word you would stir faith in them. Those who are in need of a healing this morning, God, we believe that you are here to heal spiritually, physically, emotionally. Those who are here in need of forgiveness, we know, Jesus Christ, that you are here waiting and ready to forgive. That, Lord, you are simply here to meet our every need. You are able, you are sufficient for all things. And so now, as we look into your word, stir up in our hearts a hunger and a passion for you. Give us a sense of desperateness concerning the days we live in, our spiritual condition, and the work that is yet to be done in our lives and the lives around us. Cause us to move this morning from just being Sunday morning church Christians into being living, thriving, active ambassadors for Christ Jesus who are full of faith and represent you rightly. So come now, instruct and transform us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys will remember a couple weeks ago we were in Mark chapter 4 around about verse 35 and it was at that time that Jesus told his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side with him. They got in the boat and were told that when they were in the boat going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee that a great storm arose and the storm came and the guys were fearing for their lives and all the while we saw that amazing picture that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boats and what that meant was that he was at absolute peace because God is always in control when the storms of life come God doesn't trip out we trip out but we need not trip out because God is in control we can give him a call amen and then we just got to be obedient And God deals with our every situation in the most amazing way. And so they made it through that storm by the grace of Jesus Christ, who with just a word calmed the storm. Then you'll remember that last week, as we moved into chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, they came to the other side, and there they encountered the demoniac, who was possessed by a demon of legions. And nothing that all of humanity could do for him was sufficient. None of his friends, none of his family, nothing in society could deal with his problems. And so he had isolated himself in the graveyard. He was crying out day and night, cutting himself with stones. 
And Jesus shows up and with a word, he defeats the enemy. The enemy is cast out. The man is restored to his senses, to his right mind. There he is sitting clothed. He says to Jesus, Jesus, now I want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, man, it's more important that you go to your town, to your friends and to your family and tell them what wonderful things the Lord has done for you. And we talked about the fact that God is not only able to deliver us from trials and tribulations, but from the evil things of this world and even from the enemy Satan himself. That he is able to restore us to a right, sane relationship with himself, our creator God. And then when he does so, we are given the task, the ability, and the honor and the commission to tell those people that are near to us in our lives. And so after that account now, they got back in the boat and now they've come over to the other side. It's been quite an eventful day so far. And now when they get on the other side, the multitude is there waiting for them. And here comes this man who is a synagogue official. His name is Jairus. And he presses through the crowd and he comes up to Jesus and he lays out a heavy need before Jesus. Understand that this man was, as I said, a synagogue official or ruler. He was responsible for the physical well-being of the synagogue, that place where the Jews gathered weekly on the Sabbath to worship and learn the Torah, the uh, first five books of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament. And he was also responsible for instructing people in the things of God. He was well respected in the community, well-known. He had position, he had power, he had authority. But no position, no power, no authority, no place among men could do anything for him in this situation. There was nothing that anyone or any position could achieve. You see, his 12-year-old daughter and Luke's parallel chapter, or Luke's parallel account in chapter 8, verse 42 of Luke, tells us his only daughter was sick to the point of death. And this official, this important man came and sought out Jesus, whom all the people were talking about. They were wondering who he was. Might he really be the Messiah? And he came and said, Jesus, you've got to help me. Specifically, he said in verse 23, or the text says, that he entreated Jesus earnestly. It means that he began to beg him with intensity. Of course he would beg him with intensity. Any of us who are parents can relate and we can understand what it must mean for this man whose daughter has only lived 12 years to be on her deathbed, his only daughter. It was desperate times. This was a desperate man. His position and his place in life could do nothing for him when death came knocking. And so he began to beg Jesus earnestly. And now there is for us at the outset of this text a lesson with regards to prayer. A lesson with regards to prayer. And that is that our prayer lives ought to be earnest. They ought to be fervent. They ought to be full of passion. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11 as we see Jesus illustrate this. Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, we'll start in verse 1 for context. It says, And it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. It's interesting that in the gospel accounts, the only thing that the disciples ever specifically asked Jesus to teach them about was prayer. 
They didn't talk about the raising of the dead or the walking on water or the healing or the multiplying of the bread. What they were most impressed with was the prayer life of Jesus Christ because it was obvious that the power that was manifest in his life flowed through his prayer life. And so when they wanted to know about something so powerful, they said, Jesus, if you're going to teach us anything, teach us about prayer. And we're very familiar with the following verses. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is in debt to us. And lead us not in temptation. And now, the part that I want you to pay close attention to in verse 5. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Hey man, don't bother me. The door's already been shut and my children and I are all in bed. I can't get up right now and give you anything. So the story that Jesus is using to illustrate this truth concerning prayer is in the middle of the night, this guy has a visitor. He goes pounding on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night. Seldom is that welcomed. And he says, hey man, I need some food. I've got this guy. He came and he wants to eat. I don't have any food. Can you hook me up? And from inside the neighbor goes, what are you, nuts? It's midnight, man. I'm in bed. My children are in bed. I'm not going to get up and give you anything. Seems to make sense, right? But look, in verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of the man's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened to him. Jesus gives here a parable. A parable that both compares and contrasts. What is compared is humanity. Right? That we're kind of like that guy who was bugged in the middle of the night and we say, go away. Maybe you're more friendly than that, maybe you're not. That's not the big deal. The more distinct or important comparison is this guy who's persistent. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He just kept knocking and pounding on the door. I'm not going away. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going home till you give me what I want. That's the comparison for us. Remember, a parable is a comparison to illustrate a point. The comparison for us is that in prayer, we ought to be that way. We ought to be persistent. We ought to be insistent, not forgiving or not for, uh, not giving up is what I meant to say. Always coming before the throne of God, continually asking over and over. That's the comparison. That's how we ought to be in prayer. The contrast is with regards to the character of God. God is not like the friend who said, I won't open the door. God is trying to highlight the fact that he's not like that friend, but rather he is our Heavenly Father who loves us and delights in giving good gifts to his children. So it's a parable by contrast in that sense that God is willing to give good things to us, but we are called to be persistent. This word persistence, and it might be translated in in the NIV boldness, means literally to be without shame in the Greek language. To be persistent is to be without shame. It has the idea of recklessness, audacity, shamelessness. And what was effective in this man's prayer is the fact that he was without shame. He was reckless in the prayer, so to speak, or in the requests. And so effective prayer in our lives is to be persistent prayer. 
I love the way that the old King James translates what the New American Standard translates persistence. The old King James word is importunity. We seldom use that, but you could still look it up in the dictionary. Importunity. It carries this idea. To be persistently requesting with insistence. To be importune is to be consistently requesting with insistence or persistently asking with insistence. Asking over and over and not taking no for an answer. It has a sense of urgency and demanding. It's interesting that God says that this is the way that we ought to be in prayer. I want to allow Jesus to illustrate it to you now in another text as we turn to Luke chapter 18 and we see something similar. Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. Jesus is going to give us another parable in the first eight verses. And we start in verse 1. Now, Jesus was telling them, that is the disciples, a parable to show that. In other words, this is what Jesus wants his disciples to know. He wants them to know that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So he's going to give them this parable, this comparison, this story to illustrate that they ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. And so Jesus says in verse 2, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. Give me justice, she was saying to this unjust judge. Verse 4, And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, because she is importune, because she is persistently asking with insistence, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming, she wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And then he says, now, now he makes the contrast. Now, shall not God, who's not like the unjust judge, I will add, shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and, he will, de- and will he delay long over them? The answer is no. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So Jesus there highlights for us the comparison in the contrast. The contrast being he's not like the unjust judge. He is willing to respond to us. He wants to give us justice and good things. But we are to cry out day and night very clear there in verse 7. And so there ought to be in our prayer lives this sense of importunity. This sense of continually coming before the throne of God. Not losing heart. Not giving up. And what we need to understand when we do that is that we can pray with tremendous faith because of our position in Jesus Christ. What do I mean? That initial Greek word that is translated in the old King King James, King Jean, in the old King James, importune, or in the New American Standard, persistence, or in the NIV, boldness, that Greek word, anadiah, means to be without shame, reckless, and shameless. Here's why that's a key. 
Here's how we can be reckless, so to speak, before God. Or better said, shameless before God. Because there's another Greek word, which is an antonym, which means the opposite to importune, and that word is iskune. And it means this, a sense of shame due to the exposure of one's weakness or sins. A sense of unworthiness. You see, in a very real way, that's what we don't have before God is a sense of shame anymore once we've been forgiven. There should not be in our prayer lives and when we come before God a sense of unworthiness. Now, granted, there ought to be in the sense that we fear the Lord, that we reverence Him. That who, is, who are we that God should be mindful of us? But with regards to approaching God in prayer, we can be shameless. We can be bold because there's no sense of unworthiness anymore. There's no sense for the child of God that, oh man, I can't come before Him and ask Him for that. Because we can. In fact, what does the book of Hebrews tell us? In chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near to God with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, we can, because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, come confidently before God. Just bring our request before Him over and over again and say, God, here's what I want you to do. I love these type of prayers. When I hear people pray this way, I know that they understand the heart of God and they have a sincere relationship with Him. When they just come and say, God, here's what I want you to do. Isn't that how we relate to each other? If we are real with one another, that's how we relate. If we're putting on a face or an act, we might try to butter each other up, you know what I mean? Oh, hey man, you look great today. Oh, bro, I love your shoes. Ah, oh, man, I have always loved you. I'm so excited to see you. Hey man, by the way, can you hook me up with this and that and the other? That's not being real. When we're real, we relate how I relate to my father. Last night, we were watching a boxing match on TV, and I was just sprawled out there on some pillows in the living room, relaxing and enjoying myself, and my dad got up, and I said, hey, dad, can you grab me a Pepsi? And as he's walking away, I said, and don't forget the ice. I mean, he's my dad. He loves me. I just ask him like it is. I don't need to butter him up. I don't need to play games with him. He loves me and I love him. In the same way, we ought to relate to God. Just come before him and say, okay, God, here's the deal. Here's what I need. Now, sometimes we're going to ask for dumb things because we're children. My son, he's three and a half years old, Isaiah. He asks for the most ridiculous things sometimes. He wants candy before dinner and he wants a popsicle in the morning. Things I'm not going to give him. In the same way, we are instructed to pray according to the will of God. And when we pray according to the will of God, the Bible says that we have confidence. I give to you 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So we have a confidence to approach God, We have the ability to pray according to the will of God because we have the word of God. And then we have confidence in receiving what we've asked for when we pray according to the will of God and in the name of Jesus. With regards to our prayers, it says in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 that the prayers of the saints are as golden bowls full of incense before God. In other words, he delights in hearing your voice even if your prayer is dumb. When my son wakes up in the morning... 
And he says to me, Papa, I want a popsicle. I love to hear his voice. I enjoy it. Just because of a lack of understanding on his part, he asks for something silly, doesn't mean I reject him or shun him. I love him. I will give to him what is best for him, a healthy breakfast. God is the same way. Even if your prayer is without knowledge, if it's ignorant, if it's silly, if it's dumb, he wants to hear your voice. He delights to hear the voice of his children. Your prayers, it doesn't there qualify the word prayers. It doesn't say your right prayers or your good prayers or your eloquent prayers or your prayers according to the will of God. It just says that the prayers of the saints communicating with God is as golden bowls full of incense before God. It smells good. It's pleasing to his senses, if you will. And so come before him continually. Is there a need in your life today? Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. Don't give up. If it's not God's will, God will instruct you concerning that. One of the profound things about prayer is not only does it move the hand of God, but it changes the heart of men. And so if God's not going to move his hand, if you're praying contrary to his will, then he'll go ahead and move your heart. Isn't that good? Regardless, just pray. And here's something that is very significant. We're told in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 that the Holy Spirit helps our weaknesses and that we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That is to say, when we are unaware, we don't know what needs to be prayed for. When we are ignorant, we don't know how to pray. Or maybe we're unable, we're incapacitated and we just can't get it together. God has given us the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us, who always prays according to the will of God because he is the third person of the Trinity. This is called inter-Trinitarian communication. When one member of the Trinity speaks to another, why do they have to if they're one? I don't know, but they do. Jesus prayed to the Father in the Gospels. Furthermore, we're told that Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for the saints. Isn't that good? Even when we fail in prayer, Jesus is still interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. How powerful would it be if you came alongside them and begin to persistently ask with insistence? I think if we prayed as Jesus instructs us to pray, we would be overwhelmed at how profoundly our coastline would be transformed. The key is to pray, saints. We have prayer meetings here at this church. Sunday mornings at 8.30, some of us gather to pray, and we pray for the rest of you, and we pray for the service, and we pray for the community and the coastline. Tuesday evenings at 6 o'clock, we gather to pray for the families of Carpinteria, the youth of Carpinteria. We pray for the salvation of people. We pray for God to move powerfully in our schools, in our community, and on this coastline. And there's way more people here to sing the songs and listen to the sermon than there are to pray. But I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream that someday at this church, the prayer meeting would dwarf the worship service that there would be so many people fervent for prayer that we'd have to have multiple prayer services, that we'd have to have an overflow room for prayer. I have a dream, and I hope God doesn't take me home until I see that dream fulfilled. 
Because I want to see the fruit of his people fervently praying, of his people coming before him and beseeching him earnestly. I want to see how many people get saved. I want to see the hand of God moved through our prayers. I want to see our hearts transformed. I want to see the fruit abounding in our coastline. I want to see God do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we ask or thought or imagine. I want to experience the fact that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. If you're in a war and you conquer, that's it. It doesn't go any higher than that. But in Christ Jesus, with regards to life's trials and tribulations, we are more than conquerors. But saints, these things are attained by faith. And prayer is what connects faith with reality. Prayer moves the hand of God in the hearts of men. And so Jesus instructs us here, and we see through the man Jairus, that we ought to pray with fervency, with importunity. Now I want you to see the results of his prayer as we go back to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, the man comes, he entreats him earnestly in verse 23. And then just this beautiful picture in verse 24, look at this. It says, and Jesus went off with a man. Think about that for a minute. The man came and said, Lord, I need help. And how did God respond? God was with him. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus went with the man. It was a busy day. He had all his disciples there. There was the multitude, the crowd pressing in around him. He had already dealt with the storm. He had already dealt with the legion of demons. And now he comes back and God still has the time to go with this man. Don't miss God's heart for individuals. Don't miss God's heart for you. That his thoughts toward you are more than can be numbered. That he is intimately and infinitely concerned with your well-being. The man said, I need help. And Jesus didn't just send an ambassador. He didn't just send a representative. Wouldn't it have been enough if he had said, oh, you need help? Here's Peter. Or here's James. Or here's John. They'll help you. That would have been enough. Wouldn't it have been enough if he had said, hey, here's an angel. Here's Michael. Here's Gabriel. Or here's a legion of angels. That would have been more than enough. But God himself went with him. Understand that the purpose of the incarnation was that God would be with us. And so he is still with us. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. But again, saints, it is attained by faith. That is, you're believing what God says. You're acting on what the word of God teaches. When God says, I will be with you in the midst of trials and tribulations, we need to act according to that knowledge. Amen? That's not an amen. Amen? Amen? Oh, golly, people. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. That means he's out of reach, so to speak. He's up in heaven and we're not. But look what God says next. And I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, I am high and exalted and I'm with those who are hurting. I'm with those who are broken. I'm with those who feel deep sorrow or remorse is what it means to be contrite. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 14 says this. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness but a broken spirit, who can bear? The answer is given to us right there. 
we can bear a broken spirit by Christ Jesus with us. When we are broken, when we're weak, when we're unable, that is when God, in this comforting sense, is with us. He's given us the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. I want to show you Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 28, or 28 through 30, rather. Jesus speaking, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Shouldn't we have that tattooed on our foreheads? How often are we weary and heavy laden with our sins, with our burdens, with just the things of this life? I wish it was on my forehead so when I looked in the mirror, I remembered. Come to me, not to your best friend, not to your mama, not to your wife, not to your kids, not to the bottle, not to drugs, not to recreation. Come to me. All ye who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my load is light. Go to Jesus. He's the only one that promises rest. He's the only one. And now we have an awesome picture of somebody coming to Jesus in the following verses, starting in verse 25. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. And had endured much at the hands of many physicians. And had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and she touched his cloak. For she thought, or literally she was saying, if I can just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? And his disciples said to them, you see the multitude pressing in on you and you say, who touched you? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. And the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This woman was desperate for Jesus. She was in real need. In the same way that she was desperate for Jesus, and we're going to see what that means in a moment, we need to be desperate for Jesus. Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And it's explicit in the language that they alone shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus said concerning satisfaction in John six thirty five. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. One of the things that grieves my heart in my own life and in the lives of this congregation and in other congregations and the lives of individual Christians is a lack of desire for God and the things of God. We are so sick and perverted and twisted. We are so wrong. We are so disgusting in every way. We are so easily swayed by the things of the world. 
so easily attracted to the things of the world, so easily excited about material things and material ideas and all this stuff that is meaningless, and yet it seems to take so much for there to be a passion stirred in us concerning God. Truly, we need a Savior. We are so jacked up. We give so much attention to the things of the world and so little attention to God. And so we just need to begin to pray as we prayed at the 8.30 prayer meeting that God would develop in us congregationally and on our coastline a hunger for him in the Christians and in the non-Christians. More of a thirst, more of a desire. God will manifest himself in direct proportion to our passion for him. God will manifest himself in direct proportion to our passion for him. So if we are a people who are passionate for God, crying out for God, calling upon God, earnestly entreating him, coming before him with boldness, persistently demanding with insistence, God will manifest himself in profound ways. If we are lackadaisical, lukewarm, unconcerned, complacent, then we won't see the same moving of God. History shows that and the Bible shows that. And so I'm praying that God would stir up a hunger in us people. That God would stir up a hunger. Somebody say amen. Somebody agree. Does anybody agree with me this morning? That we need more of a hunger for God in our individual lives and in our corporate lives. Maybe this week we ought to covenant together. Covenant is such a strong word. It was reserved for marriage and for God. Maybe this week we ought to agree together that we pray for ourselves and for one another for this new fervency, this new hunger, that the things of the world would begin to be revealed for what they are, meaningless, worthless, unsatisfactory, and that God would be revealed for who he is, the bread of life and the living water that we need. There are two ways, three ways rather, that God will develop a hunger in us. Number one, we're speaking of now, earnest prayer. Number two, the word of God. And number three, the trouble of life. Three ways that God develops in us a hunger for him. Earnest prayer, the word of God, and the trouble of life. Be strong in one of these areas at least. Be strong in at least one of these three. Be strong in prayer. Or thick in the word of God. Or just twiddle your thumbs and God will be sure to bring trouble to your life. He does that for our benefit, as we've spoken of so many times. But this woman had trials. She had been bleeding for 12 years. All Bible scholars and students agree that this was a menstrual situation, that she had been bleeding for 12 years in some sort of prolonged menstrual cycle. I'm sure you women could understand her sadness. Verse 26 shows how hopeless the situation was. She had endured much at the hands of physicians. And she had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. In fact, things got worse. It was a hopeless situation. For 12 years, she did not stop bleeding. And when she went to the doctors, all they would do is poke and prod, but she would be sent home with the same condition and a bill that she could barely afford. And she didn't get better, but it was getting worse. Can you see the desperateness of this woman's situation? Oh, friends, it gets so much worse. The book of Leviticus declares that a woman in her menstrual cycle was unceremonially clean. God gave us uh, ideas of ceremonial or ritual purity in the Old Testament. They had to do with three categories. Number one, food. Number two, the touching or the ought not to be touching of dead bodies. And number three, our bodily condition and diseases. 
And there were certain time in a man's life and in a woman's life and certain diseases and bodily conditions that would render them ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. This was for the purpose practically of protecting God's people. He gave them some real health tips in these. But secondly, to illustrate God's holiness and man's fallenness. And so when a woman was in her menstrual period, she was unclean. She didn't participate during that time in the ritual life of Israel, in the religious practices. Furthermore, anything that she laid upon, i.e. her bed, was unclean. Anything that she sat upon was unclean. There are also times for males when this was true of them. What is worse is that if anybody touched her during this time, they too became unclean. If anybody touched the bed that she was on, they became ceremonially unclean, excluded from religious services. If they sat the chair that she had, or touched or sat on the chair that she was in, they became excluded from the religious life. And we're told that in Leviticus fifteen nineteen, all the way through verse twenty five. Verse 25 says, if the woman has an extended issue of blood or a menstrual situation, she is unclean for the duration of this period, as is all she touches and those who touch her or what she touched. Now can you with your brain begin to discern the situation this woman was in for 12 years? Not only did she have the issue of the continual blood, not only were her finances drained and her physical body racked, But if she had a marriage, it was lost. Her husband, according to Levitical law, couldn't touch her and wouldn't touch her. If she had friends, they were gone because anything that she had touched or sat on or lied on, they couldn't touch and they couldn't touch her. This woman was totally removed from the religious life of Israel and totally removed from the social life of Israel. She had nobody. She had no friends left, no family left, no finances, no strength, and the situation was only getting worse. My goodness. Maybe some of you feel this way this morning. Maybe it's not the same issue, but maybe it's just issue after issue, and you feel that way. The only thing I can tell you this morning is that Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. She came and she touched Jesus. She was healed and she was changed immediately. We're told in verse 28 that as she was working her way through the crowd, she was saying to herself, if I can only touch his outer garment, his cloak, his jacket, if I would just touch part of Jesus' clothing, then I'll be healed. She was literally in the Greek, she kept saying to herself. In other words, think of what this woman had to do. Hopefully no one in the crowd knew her because she had to come and push through this crowd of observant Jews, therefore defiling every single one of them. Was she sneaking on the ground? The, the language is clear. They were pressing in about Jesus. It was an intense crowd. She had to really work to get to the Lord. She might have been crawling between legs. She might have been on the ground, on her stomach, pushing through the crowd, all the while encouraging herself, saying, if I could just get to him, if I could just reach him, if I could only touch Jesus, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be all right. I'm at the end of my rope. It's been 12 years. I've got no money. I've got no husband. My family and my friends are gone. I've got no strength. If I could only touch Jesus. And the moment she touched him, she was healed. Now notice that there was a whole lot of people touching Jesus at that moment. The multitude were pressing in around him. In fact, when Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? His disciples sort of mocked him. Jesus, what are you talking about? There's a whole lot of people here and you say, who touched you? 
she had touched Jesus in a different way. It was a touch of faith. It was a touch of faith. You see, the way we need to approach Jesus is by faith. As I've been saying to you this morning, all things concerning God, all of his promises and all the truths are attained by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's being certain of things that are not seen, Hebrews tells us. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. David, the psalmist, had reason to fear all sorts of times in his life. In Psalm 27, he was in a whole truckload of trouble once again. But then he says in Psalm 27, verse 13, I would have despaired. I would have lost it. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In this lifetime, I would have freaked out unless I had faith. I would have lost it. I would have flipped out unless I had believed in God's character, in God's promises, in God's sovereignty, and in God's ability. Unless I had faith, I would have lost it. And because of faith, this woman's despair was turned to desperation. No longer just despairing, but now desperate to touch Jesus. And so she went after him. She pushed her way through the crowd and she touched him in a powerful way, different from the multitude. You see, flesh presses, but faith touches. All these bodies were pressing in around Jesus. It didn't mean anything. Not one of them was transformed. The flesh can press, but the faith touches the heart of God and the power of God. That's how we need to approach church and Christianity is in faith not in the flesh. You see, there's several hundred people here this morning. A small percentage of us will go home transformed. I know that because I've been doing church for some time now. I know that because it's illustrated in the Bible. God told Israel after they had been captive to Babylon for 70 years, now you can go home. He raised up King Cyrus, prophesied of his birth 100 years beforehand, raised up King Cyrus to declare the Jews can now go home from Babylon. And a tiny percentage of those who had been set free actually went to Jerusalem. The rest of them remained in captivity in Babylon. The rest of them remained in that condition. Why? Well, it had become comfortable for their flesh. You see, they had been there for 70 years. They had started jobs. They had built homes. They had gotten used to things as it was. And so when now God said, here comes a profound change, I'm delivering you from bondage and back to Jerusalem in the promised land, I'm going to fulfill my promises, a tiny percentage actually went. Today, a tiny percentage of people will encounter God in this place. I'm so thoroughly grieved to say. Because so few come expectantly. So few come in the spirit. So few come with faith. Most people are just like the multitude who just come and just press in around Jesus and they're satisfied just to be at church. Such a shame. Such a loss. So heartbreaking. When we can touch the heart of God and the being of God and the power of God in the same way that this woman did, the only thing she had was faith. Yes, the faith was wrought through her desperation but shouldn't we equally be desperate for God? And shouldn't that manifest itself as faith? And shouldn't that be experienced as transforming power in our lives? Absolutely. The Greek word used for touch here is the word haptomai. It means to touch in a way that exerts a modifying influence. 
or to grab onto. There's other words in the Greek language for touch. One is selopheo. It simply means to touch the surface of. Another is thigano. It means just barely to touch. But this word haptomai, speaking of how this woman touched Jesus, means to lay hold of. That it brought a change. It exerted a modifying influence. It means to really handle. You see, what we're called to do at church and in our Christian's life, in our Christian lives, is not just selafeo, God, not just touch the surface of the things of God, not just thegano, not just touch in a passing way, but to haptomai, to grab onto, to cling onto, to hold onto God. That is what this woman did. And I want you to notice that it brought about a reaction both in her and in God, in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. And immediately Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. The touch of faith transforms. There's a fascinating scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It goes something like this. God's divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through him, that is Christ Jesus. God's divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge, it says in the text, of Christ Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. That word in the Greek translated true knowledge is epinosis. It's not just the word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's epinosis, which means to have clear, exact, experiential knowledge. It connotes thorough participation in the part of the one seeking it. In other words, it's the idea of rolling up your sleeves and really getting involved in that which you're interested in. A hands-on experience. It's the way that this woman touched Jesus Christ. Now again, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge, the epinosis of Christ Jesus. That is, through rolling up our sleeves and really getting involved in God. Not just knowing about God. Not just going to church. Not just having a passing knowledge, but a firm, experiential, first-hand, thorough participation in the things of God. Through that comes all things pertaining to life and godliness. That is the idea, I believe, as this woman touched Jesus in that way with faith, the Greek word being haptomai. As I said, as I said both God and the woman were affected. I want you to notice the response of Jesus in verse 34 is profound. He calls her daughter. Do you understand the risks that this woman took by trying to touch Jesus? She was ceremonially unclean and she was pursuing after a rabbi to touch him. Jesus was, of course, a rabbi, a teacher in Israel. It's very simple. And she was pursuing after him to touch him. If any of the religious leaders, if any of the males in Jerusalem or in Israel, wherever they were, I'm sorry, in the area of Galilee, had known about that, they would have grabbed this woman and thrown her as far as they could. Don't you, being ceremonial and clean, go try to defile the rabbi now? And any other rabbi in Israel would have flipped his lid if they were touched by this woman who was ceremonial and clean. That is why it says in verse 33, but the woman was fearing and trembling. When Jesus said, who touched me? She was fearing and trembling. Now, let me let you in on something. Jesus knew exactly who touched him. (laughs) He knew exactly. He's a God of the universe. He knows the hearts of men. He knows all things. He knew exactly. But he wanted to give the woman an opportunity to worship. 
And he wanted to give the woman an opportunity to interact on a personal level. You see, it would have been enough if she was just healed, but God does exceeding abundantly. He wanted to give her more. So he said, who touched me? (laughs) He knew. Who touched me? And the woman was fearing for her life because a ceremonially unclean woman just touched a rabbi. And any other rabbi would have said, you woman. And he said, daughter. Daughter, a term of affection. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The reaction of God to the touch of faith. And I want us to note duly the reaction then of the woman in verse 33. As we've already already read, but I believe it's a wonderful picture of what worship ought to be. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. In that, I see a great picture of what worship ought to be. That we ought to come before God with a sense of fear and trembling. We already spoke that we come boldly. But now I'm speaking of a sense of reverence and awe before God. Not flippantly. There ought to be this strange dichotomy that happens in the heart of the Christian. That on one hand, we're able to say, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I've been redeemed, bought by the blood of the Lamb. I am pure. I am spotless. I am innocent and undefiled by His forgiveness. And I can totally be in His presence. Hooray and amen. He's my Father. And at the same time going, oh my gosh. Even the angels cover their eyes when they're in the presence of God. And here I am in the presence of God. There ought to be a sense of fear and trembling as we approach to worship Him individually and corporately. Secondly, it says concerning the woman that she was aware of what had happened to her. That is worship. That we acknowledge what God has done for us. That we have been forgiven, that we've been redeemed, that we've been sanctified, that we will be glorified, that we are seated in the heavenlies, that we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus and heirs of God. To worship is to know what God has done for us. Thirdly, she came and fell down before him. There was an outward expression of what was happening on the inside. She wasn't afraid to express gratitude and love toward her God. And lastly there, and told him the whole truth. Psalm 107, Psalm 111, Psalm 66, over and over again in in the book of Psalms, it says, our God is great and let the redeemed say so. Part of praise and worship is us coming before God and just declaring his wonderful works and before each other and before the coastline. Here is what God has done and who he is. Our worship ought to reflect verse 33. I pray that it would. And now the story ends. Verse 35. And while Jesus was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer. Only believe, or literally, keep on believing. Only believe and keep on believing. After this great triumph of this woman being healed, now came the voice of uttermost desolation. And isn't that just like people? God could do a million wonderful things, and there's always someone to come along and poo-poo it. There's always someone to come along and say, yeah, but what about this? And poor me, and what about that? And oh, look at this bad thing, and look at that. Right on the heels of this amazing miracle came this human picture, the voice of uttermost desolation, but it was followed by the voice of uttermost consolation. No sooner did humanity speak and say, well, we see what has happened good, but let me give you the bad news. That uttermost consolation came in the voice of Jesus, who said, don't trip out, don't fear, just keep on believing. You believed earlier when he asked me to come, don't stop believing now. I'm just in the middle of the work and I'm faithful to complete the work that I've begun. Don't trip out now. Keep on believing. Give me a chance here, Jairus, to see it through to the end. Don't listen to man. 
Listen to me. Verse 37. And Jesus allowed no one to follow him in except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Jesus always calls dead people asleep. It's interesting. In uh, John chapter 11, he's talking about Lazarus being dead. And he says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of his sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, um, won't he just wake up? And then it says in verse 13 of John 11, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Hello, Lazarus is dead. Jesus spoke of it as sleeping because he has the power over death. The Bible does not teach soul sleep. Nowhere in it does. But in a sense, when we die, our body sleeps and that it's rendered inactive. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our soul or our spirit never sleeps. When we die, it goes to be with the Lord or it goes where you don't want to go. But then our body is inactive for a time until the rapture of the church. And so Jesus says, hey, she's sleeping. He knows she's dead. And they begin laughing at him in verse 40. Can you believe people laughing at God? And they began laughing at him, but he put them all out of the room and he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and he entered the room where the child was and taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk for she was 12 years old. The woman had been suffering from the issue of blood for 12 years. This girl had died after 12 years. That woman was living death. She was alive, but it was no life at all. 12 years and 12 years, what does it mean? I have no idea, but it's cool. (laughs) And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. There were for us in this passage three wonderful instructions for the Christian. That the Christian is to proclaim, the Christian is to personify, and the Christian is to provide. Notice for the woman who had the issue of blood, she went after Jesus because someone had told her about Jesus. Christians are supposed to speak about Jesus in case you didn't know. Verse 27 tells us that the Christian is to proclaim the good news. Verse 28 tells us that we are to personify We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, so to speak. His ambassadors, his representatives, the vessels of his love. And then in verse 43, when Jesus tells them that they ought to give her something to eat, we realize that God's people are called to provide. We're called to provide for the sick. We're called to provide for the poor. And we're called to give spiritual food to those who hunger. What a wonderful picture of the duty and the honor and the commissioning of the Christian to proclaim to personify, and to provide. And with that in mind, I'll simply ask us this this morning. What is your need today? God is able. Christ is sufficient. He can handle it. He is willing. He is powerful. Are you willing this morning to draw near and touch him in an intimate way? Are you willing to get over yourself and get over the things of the world and get into God?
Do you want to experience the power of God, his resurrecting power, his healing power, his saving power? It's here for you. All you need to do is pursue after it like the woman and after, and after it like Jairus. And God will change your life. Amen? God, we thank you for this profound and amazing truth of your character and your power. And I simply pray in faith right now, God, that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you intimately as their Lord and Savior, that right now they, like Jairus and like the woman, would reach out to you and would cry out and say, God, help me. Forgive me of my sins. Make me your child. I repent of my sins. Thank you, God, that as people pray this in that sanctuary, you are responding to that. You, by faith, are forgiving them and giving them the gift of eternal life. And I pray now, as we give time to worship you, that you would begin to meet the needs as you see fit. For those who need healing, for those who need comfort, for those who need provision, for those who need direction, thank you that you are here. Thank you that the Holy Spirit will intercede with groanings too deep for words and that your Son is seated at your right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. And now cause us to be fervent, to press into you and to receive all that you have for us, Lord. We want nothing more and we certainly want nothing less. In the name of Jesus, amen.